Uh, Saints, while you're standing, would you please turn to the book of Revelation? Chapter 15. Revelation, the 15th chapter. We are returning this morning after a little over a month and a half to our study in the Apocalypse of John. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, with God's help, we will be considering verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider these glorious things. Lord, help us to rejoice in them, and to find great comfort in them, and warning as well. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you become more. Be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated, saints. As I said a moment ago, we return now to the study, our study, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 15 begins what is called the fifth section of Revelation. In its presentation of the judgments of the seven bowls of the wrath of God. For more on the wrath of God, go back. I encourage you to listen to a sermon that we did a few weeks ago on the wrath of God. Verse 1 is the beginning of the formal introduction of the seven bowls of plagues. Seven bowls of plagues that are um, viewed as containing wrath from God that will be poured out and that are poured out on wicked nations. They serve as really an introductory statement for what we will consider all the way up to chapter 16, verse 21. So what we see here in 15 is preparing us for all that we will see all the way up to 1621. John begins the chapter with a familiar phrase, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. The same phrase occurs in chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. Same thing. The similarity of these phrases, they serve as a kind of link between these passages or a a link between these visions. John is saying that, that what he's seeing, though variety in visions, is really all taking place in terms of last days. In the 15th chapter, let me just say real quick as before we, I know we haven't been in Revelation for a while, so for some of us, we're, we're recalibrating. This is a good place to recalibrate, this beginning point. 
So keep that in mind. You may say, where are we at? Where have we been? You'll catch up. Uh, in the 15th chapter, John is now seeing. That's a good way to start. John is now seeing seven angels holding seven plagues. In the 16th chapter, these plagues will be refer- referred to as bowls. And as I said a moment ago, they're, they're to symbolize a bowl that is being um, given by God in which God is pouring out judgment into these bowls to which angels will then will then come and pour out those bowls on and are pouring out. Catch me when I do this. When I say will instead of are and will. That makes sense? The distinction. God has this judgment from His holiness being poured out into these bowls that are being held by seven angels. We've talked about these archangels before, haven't we? These archangels are those who are holding these bowls that God has poured out His judgment into. They are, have been, and will be poured out on wicked nations. I need to make that distinction. Instead of us thinking... This is something in the future. It has been, it is, and it will be. I'm going to say that more about that in a moment. The bowls are full of God's judgment, and they are poured out on those who oppose God and His church. They are poured out on those who oppose God and His church. It's important that we reiterate this. From the moment that Christ rose from the dead... Inaugurating his kingdom. That, that, that is, um, when his, his crown is first being placed upon his head. That's what inauguration means. We have been living in the last days. Awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. That is when, um, all that needs to be accomplished in forming God's kingdom has come to completion. Consummation is bringing to a completion God's kingdom. Right? Since Christ arose from the dead, We've been living in the last days. And since Christ arose from the dead, his followers have experienced tribulation, suffering, because of their holding fast to the confession of faith in Christ. Meaning this, you might have caught that. Since Christ rose from the dead, we have been, we have been in tribulation. Tribulation is not something in the future yet to come. It has been something that we have been experiencing since Christ rose from the dead. And I say we, we are the church. When one member hurts, we all hurt. When one member suffers, we all suffer, yes? At different times and in different degrees, the church has been persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Because the church age represents the last days. We are in them. John sees another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels, we can call them archangels, entrusted with the last plagues. The significance of these seven angels is that they carry plagues. I keep, I'm going to keep saying that. Which are the last. Because in them, the wrath of God is finished. That, that phrase is important. The outpouring of the bowls have been, are, and reveal the end of history. Reveal the end of days. They also will ultimately culminate in the termination of the first heaven and the first earth. Heaven and earth will be remade. When the final judgment of God, not, not yet come, not, not yet uh, arrived, but will come, it will bring to an end heaven and earth. 
This will be completed in the seventh and final bowl, which we'll see who knows when. Now, we may think this. I thought that the end has already been depicted for us. You would be right. The end has already been depicted for us. We saw the 144,000. We saw the glories of heaven. We saw all those things. We might say, um, haven't we seen this story or heard this story already? Yes, you have. Then what is Revelation? What is John doing? Remember the word recapitulation? John is giving to us the same event from what? A different angle. So what we're seeing here in Revelation 15 and then onward up to 1621 will be John telling us the end from now this angle. We're seeing the same thing again. Now, I say this because John says in them, the wrath of God is finished. This causes the futurist to conclude that the judgments of God being depicted in chapter 16 mark not general history of the church, but a time just before the end. Follow me now. Meaning, they deny that the church has been living in the last days since Christ rose from the dead. They deny that the trouble that the church has experienced is the tribulation that Christ promised. Rather, they believe the judgments that are described in the 16th chapter are things in the future and things that the church has not yet experienced. Are you with me? Okay, don't fall asleep. I know it's a hard night for all of us. Therefore, rather than the 16th chapter being connected to the preceding chapters, meaning rather than John saying, this is already what we've told you just from a different angle, they go, no, 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 no. This is to be understood chronologically. Therefore, what we are seeing now is still in the future and has not yet happened. They're saying um, these things depict the end of human history. And only then, there, in the future, can that be viewed as last days, rather than everything that we've been experiencing since Christ rose from the dead being last days. Are you with me? Okay. The reason why the future... So you might go, why would they believe that? The futurist believes that the 16th chapter, it depicts events that will take place in the future, and not things that we have all been experiencing, because they see Revelation chronologically. You know what that means? It means in it means in in um, in a sort of order. First comes chapter one in order, chapter two in order. They say that because we've already read of seal and trumpets, well, that must logically mean that bowls are next and bowls are last. What John is saying is John's going no, um, seals, trumpets, and bowls—they're all the same. Well, then why are you giving me these different images? I'm just showing you, John is saying. God is showing me the same thing from just a different angle. Rather than us going, well, first will come the seals, then will come the, the trumpets, and then will come the bowls. John's saying, no, they're all the same. Just different things are described in each that are all taking place at the same time. Are you with me? Okay, I hope so. What would cause them to, to see this in a chronological order? Well, something that we just read, and I've already repeated twice now, three times, in them, the wrath of God is finished. That's used as a, as a proof statement, a, a proof verse. Um, just say, see, not yet, but with this finishing of the wrath of God, now yet, now it's complete. It's important that we note, I'm going to say this very slowly. 
just because the vision of the bowls is what is being presented now does not mean that it's meant to be taken chronologically as the thing that will take place in that particular order. Are you with me? Watch this. John receiving the vision of the bowls last only means this, that they are the last vision that he's received. Not that they are what we should be expecting to experience in history chronologically. Are you with me? Does that make sense? He's receiving the vision last, but but that doesn't mean that it's something that comes last. The bowls are the last of the seven visions. But it doesn't mean it's to be taken chronologically as things or events that will happen last. hope that makes sense. Rather, there are all of these things happening at the same time. And John is receiving all of these visions, but it doesn't mean that, okay, so then that comes first. No, John's going, I'm receiving all of this in the way that I've received it, but it doesn't mean that this is the chronological way it's supposed to take place. John says in Revelation 15.5, after these things. This is a phrase, or this phrase simply means that John saw one vision after another. That's it. They're the order in which John sees, not the order in which things occur. That's probably more clear. Nothing about this series of seeing is to be understood chronologically per se. Right? We're going to see that the bowls uh, will finally pour out. And that's that's to be taken chronologically. But in terms of all these things that, that happen, no. Not necessarily. They're woes taken from different angles. So once again, I wanted to make that going forward uh, established. We shall see the judgments of God being poured out that will lead to a conclusion of all things. We know this because of at least three things. Watch how John does this. The plagues, the sea of glass, and the song of Moses. With God's help, we shall see and consider what these are preparing us to to rejoice in. At least three things. Number one, the seven plagues. Verse one, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them... The wrath of God is finished. Okay, So John is given the vision of seven angels who carry seven plagues. When we hear the word plague, John wants our minds, God by God the Holy Spirit, to recall the ten plagues of Egypt. When you hear plagues, Scripture is always wanting you to go back to Egypt. In a, in a mental ascent, at least. We know that this is the connection. How do we know that John wants us to go back to the Exodus, to consider the Exodus? Well, because of John speaking first of plagues, and then John speaking of a sea of glass, and then John speaking of a song of Moses. John is essentially saying, remember the Exodus. Now, we know that the plagues that God brought upon Egypt are alluded to. But the question that we have is, why are they alluded to? Why does John want us to understand or look back to Exodus in order for us to understand something about Revelation or the end, the end times. What does he, through the inspiration of the Spirit, want to communicate to God's people through the Exodus plagues of Egypt? Huh. Let's consider a few things and follow me, okay? The ten, number ten, it corresponds with the number seven in that they both represent completeness. 
There is a type of fullness that is communicated by their number 10 and 7. This is why John will say, and this is what it means in, in verse 1, in them the wrath of God is finished, complete, full. And God providing the great and marvelous sign of seven angels who hold seven plagues, he communicates in the same way in which he, in which God sent forth absolute judgment upon Egypt. Why does God judge Egypt? For the mistreatment of God's people. Connect this to Revelation. God brings judgment upon Egypt for their oppression and mistreatment of God's people. So too, he will enact perfect and complete judgment upon the nations who oppose God and his church. Now think about this. For 400 years, the nation of Egypt mistreated and oppressed the Hebrews. Egypt placed great burdens on their shoulders. Uh, They enticed God's people with foreign gods. Gods who do not see and gods who do not live. Gods who have no life. But there was a remnant in Israel who did not succumb to the temptations of Egypt. They held fast to the faith of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they They didn't lose grasp of the promises of God because God told Abraham, now watch this, in, in Genesis chapter 15 and 13, he, he tells Abraham, 400 years earlier, 400 years before in, enslavement, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. The oppression of Israel, the enslavement of Israel, is foretold by God 400 years before they go into enslavement. God foretells, your people will suffer. Your people will suffer opposition, oppression, and persecution. They will be under bondage. Uh, Saints, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses wrote the book of Genesis. How did Moses know what Abraham, what God said to Abraham? Did Moses just go, oh, God God is telling me that he said to Abraham? No. We might say, well, it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For all scripture is breathed out by God. Amen. Indeed. Yes. And yet, and also, God uses the mind and memory of human agents to communicate what he has spoken in times past. My point is this, that which Moses penned in Genesis chapter 15 and 13 was recounted to him by a faithful people in Israel. Even though they were enslaved, there were people in Israel who held fast, not in right written form, but in hiding God's word in their heart, what God had said to them as a people through their father Abraham. There were a people in Israel who held fast to this. God said that that which we are experiencing would take place. This is why they were anticipating a deliverer to come. They knew they would be there. They also knew that God would send a deliverer. And then here comes Moses. Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He was a Hebrew raised as an Egyptian. Hebrew says, but when, according to God's decree, Moses, by faith, refused to be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God 
than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater than the riches in Egypt, for he looked forward to the reward. So Moses joins his brothers, the faithful of Israel. And most likely, these faithful are those who would become elders in Israel. And they are the ones who most likely recount all the promises of God to Moses. And then Moses begins to pen the history of God's people as his hand is being guided by the Spirit. God preserves his people. Even in the midst of their oppression, even while they're enslaved in Egypt, we're getting to a point, God preserves his word as people hide his word in their heart and hold his word close to their hearts even while they suffer. And when in the fullness of time, or, or, or when at just the right time, according to God's eternal wisdom, God sends a deliverer to, to rescue his people from the hand of their oppressor. Ten plagues, ten judgments upon those who afflict God's people. With each plague, God declares to the nation of Egypt that he alone governs, governs heaven and earth. That God declares to Egypt that e- not even the heart of Pharaoh is in his own hands. For God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and God softens the heart of Pharaoh. Eventually, Pharaoh, because God softens, because God relents and allows Pharaoh to let the people go, he does. And John wants his audience to see this, that in the same way oppression of Israel was foretold by God, oppression of the church is foretold by God. In the same way that that God told Israel, you will suffer, God tells the church, you will suffer. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, in this world, you will have tribulation. And saints, since Christ rose from the dead, you and I have been suffering. And all of the faithful of God have been suffering tribulation. But here's what we do. We hide God's word in our hearts. We don't allow the oppression and the suffering that we experience to remove or steal God's word from our heart. In each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation... Whether explicitly stated or not, they experienced persecution. They were experiencing opposition. They were experiencing threat of death by the Roman government and by the Jews who opposed Christ and his church. All throughout history, the church has likewise suffered persecution, opposition, and threat of death. Some places more intense than others. But it does not discount the fact that when one suffers, we all suffer. And God's promise is this just as he did for Israel, so he will do for true Israel, the church. He will bring judgment upon the wicked nations for those who oppose him and his church, and he will deliver us. Let me remind you, Revelation chapter 14, verse 18 through 20, God sends forth judgment. He sends forth his angels to tread upon the wicked, and, and the blood of his judgment upon the wicked rises as high as, as, as the gates of the walls of Jerusalem. The wicked who persecute God's people will not escape punishment. They will not escape the hand of God. By the very means God, by which God punished the former, He will punish the latter. Egypt, one theologian said, drank the cup of staggering at the time of the Exodus. And will continue to, and God will continue to judge the nations for their opposition to Him. God has been, God is, and God will do this to every wicked nation who opposes Him. Dear ones, God has given us this promise 
for our comfort and for our warning. The wicked, here's your comfort, will not escape the hand of God. When you are reviled, therefore, for your faith, when you are excluded because of your being united to Christ, when you are not included in groups because of your faith in Christ, young man, when you feel weird around other people because there's just something different about you than them, it's because of your faith in Christ. When you are in conversations and you just don't get the joke, and they stop joking with you because you are in Christ and they are not. When you are excluded from gatherings because of your faith in Christ. When you lose employment because of your faith in Christ. When you are in prison, we're, we're building up. When you are imprisoned because of your faith in Christ. When you are beaten because of your faith in Christ. When you possibly are put to death because of your faith in Christ. Hold fast. The wicked will not escape the hand of God. How are they getting away with this? They will not escape the hand of God. Our brothers and sisters, we may we may say, I'm not beaten. I'm not put to death. I'm, I'm, I'm not in prison. No, but our brothers and sisters in Asia are, in the Middle East are, in Africa are, in different parts of the world. They are imprisoned. They are beaten. They are put to death. You are ridiculed. You are called um, intolerant. You are called names right now. But know this. They will not escape the hand of God. They will not escape the punishment of God. Their suffering are the saints, their suffering is our suffering. And saints, let us not forget them in prayer. Sometimes we can often just pray for hours and only hours here and, and not remember those there. May God strengthen the saints who are being persecuted in more violent ways. They will not escape the hand of God. And, and also, here, that's our comfort. Here's our warning. Let us not be envious of the wicked, therefore. Let us not look at their prosperity and envy them. Let us not look at their earthly power, their, again, prosperity or their popularity and envy them. Let us not allow our foot to stumble when we observe the apparent prosperity, popularity and power of the wicked. Asaph confesses this, doesn't he? He confesses he, in his heart, he nearly stumbled, for there was a time when he was envious of the arrogant, when he noted their prosperity. And I wonder if we would be as honest as Asaph was, and to do so for all to see. Aren't there times when we look at the lives of the wicked, when we look at the lives of those who are uh, not in Christ, and we at least ask ourselves, I wonder what, what that would be like. I wonder what their lives would be. I wonder what it would be like to have all those things. I wonder what it would be like to enjoy all those things. And we see the, the prosperity of the wicked. And, and, and won't, we, won't we be at least a little honest to say, there have been times where I've wondered. He says, this is what Asaph notices, Tony. He says, there's no pains in their body and their bellies are fat. Uh, another version says, unlike others, um, unlike other, unlike the righteous, they have no struggles. They're healthy and strong. Looking at the wicked and go, they seem to have no issues. They seem to have it all. And, and here am I. Oh, we'll get to that. He, he says, they wear pride like a necklace. It, it's just obvious how they even curse God. They say things about God that I can't, I can't imagine how God, don't you say that sometimes we go, how, why does God let them get away with these things? How does God let them talk about him like that? 
I heard a popular YouTuber um, speaking to his friend who was a Christian say to his friend, Jesus is and, and uses a, a, an obscenity. And his friend says, how are you talking like that? And the YouTuber is popular, has all sorts of money. Um, where, is, where, is, where is a popular um, special card encased in gold around his neck? And where is it like pride? They mock and speak of, 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 of God's people. Uh, he says, they, they wear pride like a necklace and clothe themselves in violence. They mock and speak of oppression and do so from the seats of authority. Yes, they oppress people and they, and they brag about it. And they mock those whom they are oppressing. Asaph speaks more about their wickedness. But here's the question that he wrestles as he looks with. He looks at their carefree life and here's what he says. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's saying this. Why am I keeping my heart pure? Why am I keeping my hands from wickedness? If the reward is, I'm stricken and suffer every day. They're prospering. They seem to be healthy and strong. Their belly is fat. And here I am keeping myself from wickedness and I'm suffering. It seems as though the wicked are reaping the reward of the righteous and the righteous are reaping the reward of the, of the wicked. Tables, what gives? Something seems to be off here. He says this in verse 16. And, uh, chap- this is Psalm 73. When I thought of this, or listen to this, he goes, when I thought of understanding this, when I thought of making sense of it, it was troublesome in my sight. Or another version says, NIV says, when I tried to understand this, I became even more troubled. The more I tried to say, think about, how are they prospering while I'm suffering? The more I tried to figure this out, the more angry I got. The more, frustra- the more frustrated I got. So where's, forgive me for the, the, use, the use of the word. Where's the breakthrough come? It comes in verse 17 when he says, there's a few different ways you can say, but then, or until, until I enter the sanctuary of God. All of these things he's wrestling with, and he goes, but then, then I went, but then I went into God's sanctuary. Or, I wrestled with all these things until I came into the house of God. And here's what he does when he, when he, when he comes into the house of God, here's what's made clear to him. Then I perceived or understood their end. I'm, I'm wrestling with God. God, how could you allow the wicked to prosper this way? And then I go to the house of God and God shows me what their end will be. NIV says, I'm sorry for the NIVs, but, but the NIV says, then I understood their final destiny. I just thought that was a good way to say it. He enters the house of God and his mind is reoriented. God, God recalibrates his mind to understand truth. We can be flooded throughout the week, can't we? With vast temptations. How are we going to provide? What, what our relationships should be like? Listen to this. What our lifestyles, what, what we aspire our lifestyles to be. I think the sin of most Christians is the tenth word. It's covetousness. 
We know that we're not going out and doing all the external things, but gosh, we sure want it here, don't we? And we might ask ourselves the same question as Asaph. Why am I walking? Why am I laboring to walk upright before God to keep a good conscience to maintain my witness when all I receive is trouble and stress and then oppression from the, and opposition from the world? What's the point? And you might even ask yourself, is all of this even worth it? I pray that today, if that applies to you, And if it doesn't today, it will at some point. That here in God's temple, you would perceive and understand their final end. The end of the wicked is judgment of God. Your encouragement, they won't escape God's hand of judgment. Uh, Your warning, they won't escape the hand of judgment. Their end is destruction. Here's what Asaph goes on to say. Truly, you set them in slippery places. They're there. Their prosperity is meant to cause them ultimately to fall. Their power is meant to ultimately cause them to fall. Their popularity will eventually be their downfall. Pride comes before the fall, doesn't it? He says, you make them fall in ruin. They will ultimately be destroyed. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors. They will be judged by God. They will not escape his hand of justice with the comfort that we ha- that we with, with this comfort we receive great joy. Just as we said before, we're standing on the right side. It can be frustrating at times. You're standing on the right side. You're not on the wrong side. Do not envy the wicked, for their end is destruction. God brought ten plagues upon of judgment upon the nation of Egypt for their oppression of the people of God. These plagues set the stage. These plagues for the new exodus of God's people. Uh, title for the sermon, the new exodus. It's the new exodus. The plagues that, that have been, that are, and that will be are setting the stage for the new exodus of God's people. Who is Who are God's people? You are. And where are we going? We are going to the promised land. And while we are going, do not give in when oppression comes. Do not give in when persecution comes. Do not envy the the, the position of the wicked, for their end is destruction. We are living in a type of Egypt, the world. And we are awaiting the final arrival of our deliverer, Jesus Christ, who leads us to a new and better, a new and better Canaan. Heavenly Jerusalem. Second point. Our third point's going to be very short, so don't worry. The glass of, of the sea of glass. The sea of glass. I'm, I'm sure that this, um, I know my wife who's listening, will be encouraged by this. <clears throat> Verse 2. And I saw something, look at the scriptures with me, if you will. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now, John sees, listen to this phrase, something like. That always means that it's not exactly what it is, but he's trying to use an analogy of something that it's like. That that points to a greater truth. Something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. The sea, what is that? The sea is a reference to all wickedness. To all evil. To all that is opposed 
to the triune God. Fire is judgment. Evil is the sea. Fire is judgment. After the plagues, John now sees that the sea is what? It's still like glass. That is, all evil has been put to rest. The activity of evil has ceased. The push and pull, if you can think of the ocean, the push and pull of evil has come to a standstill, to an absolute halt. Now, who's writing this? John. Isn't there something that John experienced similar to this? Now, it's not what he's alluding to, but just for, for, for anyone else who wants to say, he's also, you could also use, uh, John remembers what it is for a raging sea to be stilled by God, doesn't he? He was among those disciples who cried out to the Lord who slept on the boat to save them, for the boat was being beaten by the wind and the waves of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus stands and brings a still, a hush. I wonder if we can imagine in our mind's eye the kind of stillness that came upon the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said to be quiet. <laughs> I imagine that the sea turned into a still, a still lake. Can you imagine? When Jesus said, hush, be still. But once again, uppermost in the mind of John is the Exodus. God judged Egypt for her oppression and persecution of God's people through the ten plagues, but then ultimately through what? Through the Red Sea. But before this, there was this kind of tug. And I I hate to use it that way because there is no tug. This tug of, of Pharaoh relenting to God's decree. Until Pharaoh could relent no longer because God would not allow it. Forgive me for the the, the tug of war, because there is no... When God tugs, we give in. But God's people leave. They leave Egypt in haste, in joy, and in celebration. Israel makes their way out of Egypt, and they march to what they think is going to be the promised land until they find themselves standing in front of the Red Sea. Well, remember what Pharaoh did when this happened, right? Pharaoh learns that Egypt is, is in front of the Red Sea, and what does Pharaoh do? He gathers up his best chariots and they go racing after Egypt to bring them back, racing after Israel to bring them back to Egypt. Before long, God's people have the Red Sea in front of them and the the armies of Pharaoh behind them. Panic and fear fill the hearts of the people of God. No, let me, panic and fear fear the hearts of the people. They began accusing Moses, some began accusing Moses of bringing them into the desert to die this way. Uh, They started saying, we should have just remained slaves in Egypt for at least we were free. Uh, Or at least we weren't going to die. Yeah. They said, no, it it would have been better for us to serve, still slaves, the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So they they chose slavery over freedom and, and dying in this way. Not, I'm going to make a statement, okay? Not every person in the company of Israel was saved. That should be clear. When, when, all, when we hear, and then they cried out, we must not think every single person in all of the nation of Israel is crying out against Moses. No, not every person. There are some people in Israel who are saying, trust in God. God will protect us. This would be proven that that not every person in Israel was saved 
Because many of them doubted Moses. And when doubting Moses, they are ultimately doubting who? God. Evidence, yes. Not long after the Exodus, while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, many, not all, fashioned a golden calf and offered worship to a created thing rather than to God. Evidence that not every person in Israel was saved. There will be some later who God says, um, who will be bitten by snakes. And those who look upon the golden calf will be saved. Those who don't will perish. Many did not look upon the golden snake and they perished. Not all Israel is Israel. But within Israel, there is a, there is a, there is a remnant of those who were saved. There is a people who are saved. When they see the army, the army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, not every person lamented. I do believe there were some who, in spite of the seemingly impossible circumstance, believed that God would rescue them from the hand of their enemy. Why do I believe that? I think for many reasons. One was already in our first point. There were some who held God's word, though it was not written, held it in their heart and passed it on to Moses. They are the faithful of Israel. There are, there were many, obviously, who by faith sacrificed a lamb and then placed the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Now, there may have been some in the house who said, I don't know if this all is going to work. But the faith that it took for the one to sacrifice and put the blood on there, they obviously believed that it would work. That God would save them. There may have been some in the house who go, wow, it worked. But there are others who go, I knew it would. Because God is faithful. I also believe... There are some who did not take their eye off of the cloud. What what does that mean? Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and leading them on the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel, that he might, that they might travel before the people, that he might travel before the people. There were some, I believe, who were in the company of Israel walking through the desert who would feel the presence of God's spirit all day long being cooled as they were walking through the heat of the day. And then when night comes and in the desert, it obviously drops drastically in temperature are being warmed by the fire at night. And I believe that there are some who are in Israel who are saying, I'm, I will not, I will, I will remain fixated. My eyes will remain fixed on the one who goes before me and behind me. Oh, before me. Because when, when, uh, when Pharaoh and his armies come, God moves from the front to the back. He's no longer the one who uh, just guides them. He's also then becomes the one who defends them. And I believe that there are some who in that company who, when God moved from front to back, did not take their eyes off of him. And who rejoiced while others are panicking, who rejoiced that God not only leads them, but God defends them. They were comforted by the I am who appeared to Moses in the bush that was not consumed. They were comforted by the cloud by day and fire by night. The I am who judged Egypt with the ten plagues, who spared Israel through each of the judgments. They did not take their eyes off of him. Exodus fourteen nineteen. the angel of God who had gone before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from be, from before them and stood behind them so that it came between the camp of, of Egypt and the camp of Israel. 
And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. This is what God does for his people. As Pharaoh pursued Israel, or as the dragon pursued the church, the angel of God stood before God's people, protecting them from the forces of darkness, and yet also giving them light in front of them as well. It wasn't like uh, light left the front of them so they could no longer see, but God was surrounding them and encamping them. There were many who complained, yes, but I believe there were also many who did not take their eyes off of God. We're getting to a point. You know what takes place next, don't you? God commands Moses, lift your staff, and as an act of faith, God brings a strong wind, parts the Red Sea, allowing his people to escape on dry land to the, on the, uh, through the sea on the other side. Yes. And then Egypt pursues. And while they're pursuing, God causes, this is interesting, God causes confusion to come upon the army. They're not just driving. A type of confusion comes upon their mind and they begin to swerve in their chariots. The walls of the water that were in front of them were like walls. They begin to crash. And then they realized God is fighting for the Israelites and they begin to turn back. But before they could do, God commands Moses, stretch out your hand over the seas and the water comes back over the Egyptians, their chariots and their horsemen. Verse 28 of Exodus 14, the waters return and cover the chariots and the horsemen, even the even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. I mentioned this before. Imagine you're one of the Israelites and you have just made it safely to the shore and you're standing by looking into the eyes possibly of those who were once your oppressors being covered by the sea. The evil oppressor has been devoured by God in the sea. Imagine the stillness of your heart. <laughs> the nation of Israel hurried to dry land. Egypt has hurried to pursue. Listen to this. If you can imagine the shouting. Hurry, run. The, ho- the sound of, of horses beating on the ground. The chariots The writer who is huffing and breathing murderous insults against Israel. And then the fearful shriek and cry of the horse and rider, the horse and rider, when they realize that that there's something going on in their minds and they are crashing, they are wrecking, and now they can't turn back because waters are now engulfing them. Imagine the crashing, if you will of walls of water coming down on these armies. And then, when every one of them has been covered, absolute silence and stillness of God's judgment. Evil that is murderously pursuing, murderously in, 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 in chase, that is seeking to oppose with every ounce within them, is in silenced. The horse is silent. The rider is silent. The chariots are silent. The insults are silent. They are no more. What God is communicating through his servant John 
is that we are suffering. The dragon is pursuing us. We are being opposed. We are being persecuted. But all evil has been, is, and ultimately will be silenced. John says, I see something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. God's judgment is complete. Evil has been put to rest by God. But he doesn't just want us to know that evil has been dealt with. Not just that. He wants us to know that we are already victorious over evil. It has been, it is, and it will be. You already have victory over evil. Don't look at evil and say, one day you're going to get it. And one day I'm going to be victorious over you. You are victorious now. Standing on this side of history. We may be tempted at times to cry out like those who accused Moses of bringing them out of bondage just to suffer. God, you saved me for this? It was better for me when I was not a believer. No, don't be those people. Be the faithful who don't take their eyes off of the cloud in front of them. Be those who did not allow their eyes to depart from the cloud of glory by day and night. Because God did not depart. They embraced all of God's provisions. Lord, if this is what you have for me, I trust you. (laughs) Imagine, God, you've brought me out. And and now I see a Red Sea. And now I see uh, armies. You've never experienced that before. We, we haven't had it that bad. Yes? We've had difficulty. But there hasn't been a king and his army chasing after you. But there is a wicked king chasing after you. And he is in pursuit of your soul. But he can't have it. And so God allows trouble. God allows difficulty. And it is for our growth. It is for our learning to trust God. It is for our growth in faith. That we may not take our eyes off of God. That we may not allow our our minds and even our hearts to envy the wicked. And that we may rejoice in this. Victory is yours now. Why does God give us this example of, of Israel? They are, as Hebrews says, they are a part of the cloud of witnesses who are surrounding us. They're telling us God is faithful. God judges the wicked. Hold fast to God. Therefore, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangled us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What, what does Scripture say? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Run. Run strong. Run consistently. Run with stamina. Don't stop your pace. Don't, as you're running, take your eyes off of the markers that God has set before you. They keep you on track. Don't, as you're running, look to the left and look to the right. No, stay on course. If there is something that you can be encouraged for, for 2023, stay on course. Keep running. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Don't allow your eyes to be distracted or deterred from Christ. God tells His people, before the end, you've already won. The beast has been destroyed. The, the image of his name has been destroyed. Why do we need to know all this? Because I, I don't need to tell you, life is hard. 
Life as a Christian can be a challenge. Asaph just testified to it with trial, temptation, and suffering. Life can at times be burdensome for a believer. We can all be tempted to ask at one point or another, is this worth it? Keeping my heart pure from evil, devoting myself to taking up my my cross and, and following Christ, getting up right after a night of rain, fireworks that Brother Scott testified in his neighborhood was like cannons, loud music in some of your neighborhoods, gunshots, and then go to church the next day. Take a friend to the, the airport at three o'clock in the morning, try to get back some sleep, and then go back to, and then get up and go to church. Is it all worth it? Yes. Emphatically, yes, it is worth it. The wicked will be brought to the depths of the sea. The noise will end, and which side will you be on? Look at your Bible, verse two, if you would. Here's where God says the righteous are. Standing on the sea. Holding harps. Yours doesn't say in the sea, does it? Uh, Yours doesn't say beside the sea, does it? Yours says on the sea. In the Exodus, Israel could only stand by the sea. But true Israel stands on the sea. Israel stood by and God fought for them. We are partakers, sharers in God's victory over wickedness. And we stand with God on the sea. Where would you rather be? When you ask yourself, is it worth a fight? Ask yourself, well, would I rather be in the sea or on the sea? Would I rather be a a partaker in the judgment of God or a partaker in the victory of God? Would you rather be in the sea or on the sea? Standing with God in his judgment or under God in his judgment. Christ has fought on our behalf. And now you can fight with him. And now you you don't just stand by and allow God to fight for you. Now you fight. God has enabled you, empowered you to fight. Not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high and low places. We fight with Christ. We are his hands and his feet. His victory, his life, his death, his resurrection, his his ascension. All of these are his victory that he now gives to us. They are our victory. Christ's victory is our victory. We stand with God on the sea. We are in Christ. And we walk with, with Peter, as Peter once did on the sea. By faith. We walk on the calm sea of glass. We fight evil. And holding fast to Christ and his word, we are guaranteed victory in this struggle. Our standing also guarantees this, our resurrection. We're not sitting, we're not laying down, we're standing. Oh, saints, consider the many times in Revelation where we are pictured as standing. There stood with the Lamb 144,000. There stood With God, the righteous on the sea. And we are holding harps. We stand on the glass. One commentator, which I'm very disappointed in, says, this is to show that we use instruments in church because instruments will be used in heaven. Pish posh. 
please. You're better than that. Not so. Just like in Revelation chapter 14, verse 2, the voices of the saints are compared to many waters. Remember that? They're compared. He's, John's going, I hear something. It sounds like many waters. It sounds like loud thunder. It sounds like harpists. But the harpists are actually the voice of the saints. No, this is not to say that we use harps in heaven. It's to say that our voices sound like the, the most beautiful instrument that John can think of is a harp. And he, and he says, and in victory, they sound like harps. Not we use harps. If that's the case, then let's start using harps in the church, right? Anybody know how to play harp? Yeah, it's a specialty instrument, isn't it? It's not like a guitar you can pick up, I can figure it out. A harp is a hard instrument. But don't we sound like angels when we say, Harp the herald, angels sing glory to the newborn king. It's a song of victory. Our final point, and it's the the shortest of them all. Verse 3 and 4, and I'm going to read it because it is our final point. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, uh, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Rights and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For you are righteous. And for your righteous acts have been revealed. He connects one deliverer Moses to the true deliverer Moses, or to the, to the true deliverer Christ the Lamb. And in Christ we have ultimate victory. This is not quoting Exodus 15, but when um, Egypt is freed and they see the judgment of, of God upon the wicked, there's a song of Moses, but it's not this song. What we've just read is actually a collection of different wonderful exaltations from all of the Old Testament. And it's to say this, the God who promised a deliverer has made good on his promise in sending the Lamb. Therefore, we sing a new song. It is the song of victory. Now watch this in closing. He tells us we have victory before we read of the bowls of judgment being poured out. We're going to get to chapter 16. We're going to see dark and terrible things upon the wicked. But he begins by saying, that's not you. You who are in Christ, your victory is secure. Now let's get to the wicked. Oh, saints, is that not a great encouragement for the church of God who suffer, who experience trouble, that we can look and say, because of Christ, I'm already victorious. I don't have to be the richest. I don't have to have the biggest house. I don't have to have the most things. I don't have to be the most popular or the most influence or, 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 or the most power. All I need is Christ. Because all those things are what the world gets or uses to distract us from the thing that really matters. Fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Invest in that. that uh, James Dozal came and, and preached months ago. That's a good investment. And that's where we should give our lives and our devotion to. Let us pray. As we prepare for the new exodus, let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. I do pray that it was both encouragement and challenge for us, not only for new year, but for every new day that you give to us. 
The new year, yes, is a calendar mark. We will change numbers. But today will end, if you will. And tomorrow, if you will, we'll begin a new day. And the same decision that we made, the same kind of resolutions that we made possibly for this year, they begin.